Welcome. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? My name is Reese. I have the privilege to serve as one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. And today, we are going through Exodus 40. It is the last chapter in Exodus. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been going through the whole of Exodus over this past year. And this is the last chapter. Now, I don't know about you. If you've been with us and you've been reading through Exodus, you might be tempted... I mean, the series we've gone through has been great, but you might be tempted to think, I don't know if I can handle another chapter of details. We have gone through the details of how the priests were to dress, every everything, every ornament about their wardrobe, the, the dimensions and uh, the materials in the tabernacle and how it was made and how it was set up and on and on and on. And we might be tempted to think, I don't know if I can handle any more of this. But let me assure you, that this chapter is different. It's different than all of the previous 15 chapters of all that set up in preparation and detail. And it's because this is the end. This is the final concluding chapter. This is the commissioning of all that was made, all those preparations, commissioning of the temple or the tabernacle and its service. Uh, This chapter is going to highlight the uh, finished product And it's going to be full of intrigue, assurance, and the author is using literary devices to point us thousands of years into the future. So let's read together Exodus chapter 40. I believe it will be up on the screen as well in the Bibles. Uh, Hopefully you got one. Exodus 40, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in the ark, put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring in the temple and arrange it and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar burnt offering, and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy." You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron, put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you have anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month in the second year on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, put in its poles, raised its pillars. And he spread over the tent, spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony. 
as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and had arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstands in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle tent of meeting, and he offered it on the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they had went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covering the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys... Whenever, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in sight of all those, all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Thus concludes Exodus. Now we're going to, uh, if you look at your outline, we're going to cover this in four points. And... Uh, if you have not been with us before, let me just give you a quick recap. The, the tabernacle that's being talked about here is in ancient Israel when they were freed from the Egyptians. God wanted a place where he could talk with Moses and kind of be the central point of worship. And so he has them create this tabernacle. And essentially, it's a tent with two rooms in it with a perimeter around it. And there's some other items there that I won't get into. But just think, a tent with two rooms and with sort of like a fence around the outside um, guarding, you know, the, the land that's in there with the tent in the middle. And so this is the central place of worship for, uh, for all the Israelites. The chapter right before this, Moses inspects all of the stuff and he calls it good. It passes inspection. And we start here with, um, the first point, verses one through eight, where God is telling Moses on how to put it together. Again, it uh, maybe seem like, well, we've heard this all before, and a lot, yes, we have seen this all before, uh, but it is very important to realize that the author has a point in why they keep repeating things. So let's, uh, let's make some observations and, and find out some of the why behind that. Okay, so he is supposed to put up this structure on the first day of the first month. What happens on the first day of the first month on our calendar? Right, we kind of celebrate a newness, a new year. Um, if you look at verse 17 in this chapter, it says, in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, it was erected. What happened exactly a year ago to this time? It was when they were freed out of Egypt. The day of the Passover, God said to Moses, change your calendar, this is my interpretation here, change your calendar so that the first month is this month. So this was one year since they were freed from slavery. This is, a, this is a tremendous event that they're celebrating. Verse 2, he says, erect the structure. 
Um, like I said, this is this is a, a tent with two rooms in it, and we've got detail about the materials and sizes, etc. Another thing to notice is between each uh, or in front of each door, or they call curtain or screen, there's an altar. We'll get into what that means in a little bit. The author focuses on, I'd say, two ideas here in this section. And it's the idea of how I got the point of, of filling and covering. If you notice, there's a lot of repetition of put things in or bring things in. This is like you just bought a house and you're moving in. Like bring in the couch, bring in the piano, bring in the stuff. But what's, uh, what's interesting is that there's a lot of uh, covering, a lot of repetition of, of screening in, if you're reading ESV. Or NIV, it says curtain. The idea is to cover things up. So you move things in, and then you cover them up. That's not normally what you do when you bring things into your house. You don't like try to block it off so that no people can come in, or they can't see in the windows. So there's a lot of bringing in and covering up. What does this mean? Well, there is a big theological lesson here going on in this bringing in and covering up. You know, they spend a lot of energy, money, and time to make all these things, but then God wants them to be shielded from all the people. So why? I say there's two main reasons. One is that God wants them to know why these things are being covered up. He wants them to know why they're being covered up. And he wants them to see the exterior to know that something is valuable inside. So they can see that there's something there, but they don't have access to it. They're reminded that the objects and he himself will be there, but that they cannot gain access. So those are the two points. On that first point, we've covered this before as we've been going through Exodus, that God intends to live with his people there in the tabernacle. And because of his holiness and because of men's sin and rebellion, they cannot get near him, else they would die. And so he's protecting them. You may not come near me or they will die. On the second point, of God wants to see, let them to see something on the outside and know his presence and know something precious is there, I have an illustration for you. Humble servants, can you go get it set up? So to illustrate the point here, I like visual illustrations that help me to remember. So God put all this, had them put time and effort to make these things only to have them covered up. And so what we have here today is something of value that is covered up. Thank you, servants. So how many people want to know what's under there? Yeah. There's only two people in this room that know who this is, because it's Becky and me. Because I had to ask her if this was okay to do. <laughs> you know, there, there's a specialness to what is hidden. You know, we want to know. Now, part of the reason for this is, you know, why do you, um, why do you wrap presents? Because you want to know, you know, it's, it's, there's something special, there's a mystery to it. When you order something online, you know, you're at your computer and you click a button, and then also, all of a sudden, somebody shows up at your door with a box, but it's covered. What do you want to do? You want to open that box, you want to see what's in there. You want to make sure that what you clicked on is actually what's in there. So there's a mystery to this process. We don't want to be kept in the dark forever. Uh, but that, that mystery does help us. For example, and just so you know, I'm going to reveal what this is in a little bit. You won't be in the dark forever. 
maybe as we think about application of this point of, of the bringing in and covering up, think about why God would do this. Why does he do this in our lives? Have you ever asked God, God, show me a sign so I can see visibly that you're there? Or show me something visible and tangible that's miraculous? Maybe ask yourself, God, why don't you just plainly tell me why I'm going through this? Reveal the mystery to me. I think one of the reasons why, other than that first point of we would die if we got close to God's glory, that God is doing this for the Israelites and he works this way with us, is to help us grow in our faith. Right? When things are plain and and obvious to us, we don't always glory and wonder and seek about those things. Right? There's a mic stand here. There's a door over there. There's a window. We don't glory and think and seek after those things. They're just plain. But God is much more glorious and wonderful. And your life is much more precious than any of those things. And so when we consider what is God up to and the preciousness of our lives, we must ask, what is God doing with those as they come together? Do you ever think about that? How your life intersects with God's character and his reality. The small things, like I have some back pain, and I wonder, God, what are you doing? Maybe you didn't sleep well last night. God, what are you doing? Or maybe it's something else. Maybe an unexpected, unexpected blessing comes your way, and you can say, God, thank you for blessing me this way. What is God up to? Do you wonder, what is he up to? And this mystery of faith helps us to uh, fight against becoming sort of functional atheists where we just do duty and religious stuff all the time and we don't have the joy and the wonder and the mystery of what God is up to. So just like this covering, the items inside the tabernacle are being covered up. But God is up to something, something glorious. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to our next couple of points. Verses 9 through 15, I have it titled there, The Start, Limited Access. What's happening here in 9.15? God's telling Moses to do a lot of anointing. This is making things separate, making them special. The word anoint or consecrate happens 13 times in four verses. Everything gets anointed, all the stuff and all the people. And the priests here in verse 15 are the only ones who are allowed into this tabernacle and do the service between God and for, for the people. Verse 15. So if you're an Israelite, there is no access directly to God for you, unless you're Aaron or one of his sons, or Moses. God said in Exodus 25, 8, that the initial plan for the tabernacle was to make a sanctuary for me, that I would dwell among the people there. And in 25, 22 of Exodus, God says to Moses, there above the cover between the two cherubim, above the ark, I will meet with you. But for the rest of the people, no chance, no access. It's only through these intermediaries that they connect with God in their worship. So to illustrate this, I'm going to ask Eric to come up here. Eric is, his, is my chosen uh, one to come look behind the veil here. You may look and see what this is. You see what it is? Take a look over here. See that? Okay. You got it? All right. Would you be able to explain to everyone what you saw? Yes. Okay. Maybe. You, that was a mostly a yes. 
So the beginning of the tabernacle service, there is limited access to God personally. And only a few work in that service. But that is not the end goal of the tabernacle, what God's plan is. Look at point number three, verses 16 to 33. The end goal is going to become very clear, I think, as we look at this and in light of all the other scriptures. All right, so this is where Moses actually does the things that God tells him to do, the first 15 verses. As I read it, or maybe as you read it, you felt like, okay, I get it. I get it. Why can't it just read verse 16, the first three words, Moses did it, and then we skip down, like, you know, shoots and ladders, all the way down to verse 33, the last sentence. So Moses finished the work. Like, why can't we do that? The point is very clear that Moses did what God asked him to do, right? So why all those verses in between? Again, the author is doing something pretty, uh, pretty amazing here. It's bigger and theological, more theological than I think that's on the surface. For example, here's one reason why you need to have good Bible study skills. What's the one thing, number one thing that you're going to be looking for? Or one of the number one things? It's repetition. What is one of the, the repeated things in this section? Anybody catch it? As the Lord commanded Moses, right? Verbatim. How many times? Anybody count? Seven times. Seven times. What does seven mean? It means perfection. That's, this is, this is on purpose. This is, uh, I would say the why of the re, the answer to the question why this is all in here. Seven times. Notice how this section starts. It starts with Moses doing all that the Lord commanded him and it ends with him finishing the work. This is the first time that it says the work was finished in Exodus. Right at the very end. And if you remember, there is a ton of detail and preparation. This is the end. This is the commissioning. And by telling us that Moses, God's servant, oversaw this, and he did exactly as God commanded seven times, what the author is doing is telling us that Moses is a picture of a perfect servant, of the ideal servant. And what this does as we, we look through the lens of history and all of scripture tells us that God had planned this whole system to go obsolete. This is planned obsolescence. If you don't know what that means, it means it was set up to go away eventually. Now, flip over to Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. We're going to do a few other readings. So keep your finger in Exodus 40 and make your way over to Hebrews 8 and 9. Uh, because we're going to look at that. And the author of Hebrews basically looks at some of this text and just tells us kind of the answers to the why questions and helps us to see in light of what was God, helps us to see what God's plan was. All right, so Hebrews chapter 8, let's start at verse 5. He says they, he's talking about the priests, they serve, oh, and I'm reading the New International Version, just so it might be different than what's up on the screen. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. So it's a copy of what's in heaven, he says. Then look over at Hebrews 9, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 8. It says, Now the first covenant had its regulations for worship 
and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there were lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the golden covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Here's a key verse. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Let's skip over to verse 23, chapter 9. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. We come to the end of Exodus 40, and we think, whew, man, a lot of detail. And we wonder, what is God up to? And the author of Hebrews tells us that, that what God was doing in setting up this system is that he was pointing a big arrow ahead to Jesus. All the sacrifices, all the priestly duty pointed ahead to Jesus' sacrifice. Moses may have done things seven times here in the way that God wanted, but we'll see in just a minute, he was not even able to enter when God came. This was pointing ahead to the perfect servant, Jesus, who was able to enter and sacrifice himself once for all, as Hebrew says here. All right, so... Let's go back to Exodus 40. Flip back over to there. This limited access by the priests in 9 through 15, and point, the unlimited access pointed to ahead by Moses in 16 to 33, like I said, points us ahead to Jesus, who does away with the sacrificial system by one sacrifice of himself. Now, remember the doors or the, uh, the altars that is before the doors? Why would you do that? What would that symbolize? It would show that there are uh, ways to get into this temple, and it's by sacrifice and death. Not what you would think, but you don't have that in front of your front door. And so when Jesus came, he removed that. The, the temple was, curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, it says in Matthew 27. And so the way in was completely freed and open. And so that all had access to who God is. And access is available 
through Jesus. So let me remove the veil here. And what do we have? It's a canopy. It's a covering. This is uh, this is something we're going to give to the uh, CDFC yard sale. We don't have use for it anymore. So I wasn't trying to be too sneaky here, hopefully. But Jesus now, through him, allows us to have access to God. We can have sin, all of our sin forgiven, and we can know him personally. This is what Moses is doing here, points us ahead to Jesus. Now let's move on to our last point. Here we have God moving in, verses 34 through 38. And when God moves in, his glory fills the tabernacle, And the cloud covers everything over. Just like point number one, there's a filling and there's a covering. Like I said before, notice Moses is not able to enter, which is very interesting because before when they had the perimeter set around the mountain, he was the only one that was allowed up on the mountain. Everybody else died if they touched the mountain. But here, even him, even in his near-perfect obedience, in verses 16 to 33, even Moses could not go in. Also notice in this section, in verse uh, 38, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night. So what's going on here? This is a 24-7 appearance of God to the people. Or at least they get to see the evidence of God on the the outside. 24-7. It's a miracle that they get to see. And it says it was in the sight of all the house of Israel. So everybody got to see this no matter where they were in the town. And it also says, in all of their journeys, God operated this way. As they traveled from Egypt up to Palestine, they were going through the desert. So what does all this mean? It means that until, in terms of history, until Jesus comes, I think it means two things. God wants them to know that he is with them. You know, They can see the visible evidence of it, of the cloud and the fire. And the second thing is that they cannot get close to him, again, because of their sin and his holiness is why, else they would die. And again, Moses himself cannot even get near. And this tells us you cannot be good enough to get earn your way to God. So sort of a side point, because Moses here can't even get close to God. Another way to explain those two things is that they could see the fire and the cloud but not experience the glory inside. And they needed a go-between between them and God to minister and communicate to God on their behalf. So ancient Israel had the cloud and the fire. They had a reminder of God's presence. But what they didn't have that we have now on this side of history, on this side of the cross, is the closeness and assurance of forgiveness that was brought by Jesus. We may want for a sign. God, show me something. And God does do that. I mean, he, he shows us uh, miraculous things. People go on missions trips or, or just in their, in their lives, and they tell stories of miraculous things that they've seen with their own eyes of God at work. But what is our answer? That is not our daily answer. God wants our, the answer to that question, show me, God, for us to look at Jesus, read his word, and see him clearly. 
And by faith, we get both of those things. We get to see God and we get to be close to him. Like I said, the curtain veil was torn in two and the access to God is available to all. That curtain or the screen in verse 21, that's the one that was that was torn. And this means that if you have faith in Jesus, you have access to God 24-7, and you can be reminded of his presence. Jesus said in Matthew 28-20, I will be with you always. He said that to his disciples who were to pass that on to their disciples and so on, down to us. I will be with you always. Verse 37, chapter 40 here, it says that God was with them during all of their journeys. And the same is true for us today. You have faith in Jesus. He is with you on your journey, and you are with him. You know, yesterday I was just deeply convicted over sin. And I thought, God, why? I'm giving a message on your word. Why would you put up with me? Why would you continue with me? There are so many other better people out there than me. Why would you do this? I don't know if you've ever wondered that. Why don't you go journey with somebody else and leave me to be? Because I am certainly not worthy enough. Our scripture here today and what we've read in Hebrews reminds us that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. No matter how much we feel like, God, you should go journey with somebody else because I'm not worthy enough and not worth it. God is saying the opposite. He says, I want to journey with you, and I want you to be forgiven of your sin. And as I realized that in my prayer and meditation and repentance, I just humbled. And we all are, as we realize that God loves you so much to forgive you of all your sin, even when you stray on purpose. He knew about it ahead of time and died for you. So Jesus made the way for all of us to to be on journey with him. And so I pray that each of us would say, yes, God, I want to journey with you and I want you to journey with me. Just as you were with the Israelites, day and night, your love is great. So we come to the end of Exodus 40. And the end of Exodus all together. And we see that God rescued his people out of slavery. And he had them build this tabernacle to remind them that he is with them. And that he will take care of them. And that as the service and the setup and Moses as a, as a, a picture of what lies ahead, it all points ahead to Jesus who will die in our place. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the hope that comes from you alone. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for removing the veil that we can have access to you, that we can have forgiveness of sin and a blessing that the world longs to know but doesn't know or outright rejects. God, I pray that your kingdom would come in our hearts, in our communities, in our state, in our country, in our world, your world. We pray this all in your name. Amen.